our journey, as it were, in the study of the doctrine of modernism. And I mentioned to you, I defined modernism, I mentioned to you that modernism is basically two things. It's a tendency, and it's a body of doctrine. And we said the areas in which modernism is the tendency and body of doctrine is in sacred scripture, it's in dogmatic theology, moral theology, philosophy, and even history. And what modernism does in these areas, to one degree or another, is it seeks to substitute subjective thought, one's own personal opinion, as it were, for objective truth. Some modernists have gone so far as to say that their goal was to substitute their thought as the authority to replace the authority of the church herself. In fact, Francis, when he was first so-called elected, one of the first things he said, which was said very subtly, but nonetheless, he said this. He had a desire or wish to change the constitution of the church. Change the constitution of the church, by that he meant he wanted to change how the church is set up. Pope, bishops, clergy, the laity. He said he wanted to make it a more democratic church. That is, in and of itself, heretical. Because the church was established, her constitution was not established by man. The constitution was established by Christ himself. So modernists seek to substitute their own thinking, their opinions, their thoughts, and all different branches of sciences for the authority of the church, for divinely revealed objective dogma. And we mentioned last time that a modernist can be conservative or he can be liberal. He can be conservative in some areas. I think I mentioned to you how John Paul II now is seen as the great conservative in comparison to Francis. But they have it all, you know, for, for someone to refer to them as conservative or liberal, as I must say, and I'm, this is not pick on the Society of St. Pius Tenth night again. <laughs> You often hear when they talk, oh, he's liberal, he's conservative. I have never said that from the pulpit about Francis, John Paul II, Benedict, Paul II, any of them. I've never said, oh, he's liberal, he's conservative. I've said only one adjective, he's modernist. He's a modernist. Because whether they're liberal or conservative, they're all modernists. And that is a very important thing for you to understand. That's why so many people are confused. Because they're looking at it from the wrong point of view. They're not looking at it from the point of view that they are modernists. 
those who have, as it were, hijacked the visible institutions of the church are modernists. We're going to be going through the history and seeing how it all unfolded. Now, Father Vermeersch, who was the author, I said, of the, of the article in the Catholic Encyclopedia on Modernism, he was an early 20th century theologian. <coughs> Father Vermeersch said this of Pope St. Pius X's encyclical letter, Pashendi. He said it was the first Catholic synthesis on the subject of modernism. The first Catholic synthesis on the subject of modernism. A synthesis is a fancy word for saying a composition of parts to form a whole. So what Pius X did is he took all these modernist writings, all these modernist opinions from various modernists at his time, and he put it all together in one document. You have to understand, there was no book, for example, called Your Guide to Modernism published by modernists before this. They had nothing as like a textbook published, like here's what we believe, like the Declaration of Modernists or something like that. They had sayings and they had tendencies and they acted this way and they wrote something in sacred scripture or they wrote something about dogmatic theology and they always wrote very ambiguously ambiguously, so you could never identify, well, what are they really trying to say? I think I mentioned that last time. That's how they talk, that's how they write, so that you can't pin them down. And that, someone might say, gee, that sounds Catholic, and someone might say, that's not Catholic at all. So Pius X, when he wrote Pashendi, he organized the modernist Doctrine and their tendencies. There's plenty of seats up here if you want to come in. I don't want you to stand through the whole thing. Your choice. Just want to let you know. (laughs) The front row got closer. (laughs) But Pius X organized their thought. And then after when he published this encyclical, The reason he did this was not so that he could do a personal study of modernism. He did it, and he sent it out to all bishops, all priests and dioceses, seminary rectors, college deans of Catholic universities and colleges. He published this. It was sent out. Everybody was put on high alert of this movement that was going on in the church among certain clergy and Catholic people. And in the document, he outlined the objectives of modernism. And as I mentioned to you, he summed it all up in one statement. The goal of modernism is to change the Catholic religion. You remember anything about modernism, you remember that. One of the leading modernists during the reign of Pius X was a man by the name of Alfred Loisy. But before we talk about him, we have to talk about this document here, Il Programma dei Modernista. This document was published in 1908 a year after Pius X's document, Pashendi, was published on modernism. This document was published by Italian modernists. And it's literally a program of modernism. 
And in the document, they outlined the objectives of modernism. It's interesting to note, if you go through this book and you put it side by side with Pashendi, it's basically the same. Because they took Pashendi and they organized their own thought based on what Pius X had done. This was published as a response to Pashendi. And as I say, this man here, Alfred Loisy, was a French priest, and he was, if not the leader, so to speak, of modernism at this time. He was the most outspoken. After the publication of Pashendi and the Italian modernist document, Alfred Loisy began writing in theological manuals. He became more outspoken. He, he dropped some of the ambiguities. And he went on an attack of Pope St. Pius X and his document Pashendi. This is what he wrote in 1908. And by the way, that's the year he is excommunicated by Pius X himself. But this is what Loisy said. The avowed modernists form a fairly definite group of thinking men. That's in response to Pius X because there was no definite group, as it were, organized. But now he's coming out and saying, oh yes, we are. So he says, the avowed modernists form a fairly definite group of thinking men united, he says, in the common desire. In a common desire. And you may ask, well, where were the where, what, where were these modernists? They were predominantly in Italy and France. But he says they're united in this common desire to do one thing. Generally speaking, one thing. To adapt Catholicism to the intellectual, moral, and social needs of today. To adapt Catholicism to the intellectual, moral, and social needs of today. Those were Loisy's own words. And by these words, he is saying, it is the desire of modernists to change and update the church. To change her unchangeable, dogmatic, and moral truths and fit them into the standards of the world. Isn't that what St. Pius X said was the goal of modernism? He said it more clearly, to change the Catholic religion. Loisy also said that our religious attitude, as the Italian document stated, is ruled by the single wish to be one with Christians and Catholics who live in harmony with the spirit of the age. Does that sound something like John Paul II might have said? Could you repeat that last sentence, please? He said, Our religious attitude as Il Programma Dei Modernisti states, is ruled by the single wish to be one with Christians and Catholics who live in harmony with the spirit of the age. What is he basically saying there? Ecumenism. Ecumenism. We have to break down the differences between the various religions that call themselves Christians, and we all have to live harmoniously in this age. 
We can summarize modernism under three headings, as is stated in the program of modernism published by the Italians. And these three headings are, first of all, a spirit of complete emancipation tending to weaken ecclesiastical authority. This is right out of the Italian modernist document. This is their first heading. A spirit of complete emancipation to weaken ecclesiastical authority. So what are they saying here? And all their fancy words, right? What these modernists are saying is, we want a freedom to say and teach whatever we feel. Our own subjective religious experience. And we don't want the church to have this absolute authority to determine what is true, what is not true, what is right, and what is wrong. The document goes even deeper and says, this emancipation, what is emancipation? It's freedom. This freedom must be in the area of science. Of science. By science, we're not talking, strictly speaking, like the empirical sciences of physics, chemistry, biology. By science, we're talking all fields of learning. Theology, philosophy, sacred scripture. They want a freedom to say whatever they want to say about sacred scripture about dogmatic theology, that is about the divinely revealed teachings of the church. And they don't want to have a fear that the ecclesiastical authority in Rome will come down on them. They also wrote in that document concerning the emancipation of the private conscience. The emancipation of the private conscience. We heard a lot from Vatican II about conscience. But what they were saying here is that those who have certain inspirations about some aspect of sacred scripture or dogmas, teachings of the faith, philosophy, those should not be overridden by papal decrees or anathemas. Condemnations. So, this spirit of complete emancipation or freedom was all about weakening, tearing down the structure of ecclesiastical authority in the church. So the modernists could do and say in regard to anything and not have a fear that they were going to be disciplined for it. The second heading of modernism, according to the Il Programma Dei Modernisti, the program concerning modernism, the second heading is a spirit of movement and change that abhors anything fixed or stationary. A spirit of movement and change that abhors anything fixed and stationary. That's a very important statement. In other words, this modernist movement is a movement rooted in change. And that if there's anything fixed or stationary, such as are the divinely revealed truths of our faith that are infallibly taught by the church, 
Those things must be abhorred. Those things must be changed. Those things must not be an obstacle to change on how we feel now. Because modernists believe in what we call the evolution of dogma. The evolution of dogma. They use that word to literally teach that dogma, and they mean the divinely revealed truths of the faith that are infallibly taught by the church. They mean to say that these things can change. What was true a thousand years ago may not be true now in regard to these things. So for the modernists, there are no fixed As a certain priest said, there are no fixed or constant dogmas of faith. The concept of truth is always changing. And it will keep changing. An objective dogma is to be abhorred. And finally, the third heading of modernism, according to the Italian document, the program of modernism, is this. The promotion of a spirit of reconciliation among all men through the feelings of the heart. That sounds like a song, right? (laughs) The reconciliation of the among all men, a spirit of reconciliation among all men through the feelings of the heart. This is what I mentioned Loisy had said about a harmonious coming together of all different religions, breaking down the differences and just coming together in a harmony. The document goes on to state, and as certain modernists have stated, that for modernism, we look for agreement. The modernist looks for agreement and not the doctrinal differences. Modernists, therefore, are ready to come together. They're ready to meet. They're ready to talk to non-Catholics. But you notice they're never ready to resolve what are the essential differences. There's never any talk like that. There's only a spirit of agreement. And all the, di- all the differences, the doctrinal differences, are not addressed. And they draw up, they draw up these agreements here in which they agree to agree on certain things. And there are some things that they You know, in these lengthy documents uh, that have been drawn up by Paul VI when he met with the Greek Archbishop of, Schismatic Archbishop of Constantinople, I think in like 1966 or something. Uh, They have these various, if you read through it though, there's nothing really agreed upon, except that they recognize each other as brothers in Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with Pope Pius XI's encyclical Mortalium Animos. Mortalium Animos is Pius XI's encyclical on, on ecumenism. That is, on the ecumenic, ecumenical meetings with non-Catholic religions. Pius XI made it very clear. The church will sit down with other faiths. But with this understanding, she sits down with them to teach them the truth and not to learn. John Paul II published his encyclical on ecumenism. It was called Ut Unum Sint. It was taken from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 17. Literally, it means that they may be one. It's taken from... 
our Lord's prayer about for a prayer for unity for the apostles in particular. But John Paul II wrote that the church will sit down with other faiths in so many words, and she, like them, comes to learn the truth. You see the difference here? Yeah. She, like them, comes to learn the truth. And Francis actually extended this to atheists. The church is going to sit down now with atheists, too, and learn something from them. This is actually one of the fundamental programs of modernism. The ecumenical movement, if I could call it that, in the new church began with John XXIII. Paul VI was part of it. John Paul I. There's really nothing much to say about him, except God had mercy. <laughs> John Paul II, of course, Benedict XVI, and now Francis. If they have promoted anything, it's their false ecumenism. And not just with so-called Christian religions, but with every, as a certain priest once said years ago, with every product of hell that the devil has put on this earth. That is the modernism, the definition of modernism, and some information about it. What I would like to do now is go into the historical background and now go through a history of what actually happened here. Yes, we've already talked about Pius X of Bashandi a little, but let's look at more names and how it all developed from the time of Pius X. And we may not finish tonight, but from the time of Pius, St. Pius X all the way up to Vatican II. It was in the mid to late 19th and early 20th century that modernism, as it were, began. As I mentioned, it was chiefly found among priests and some bishops and people in Italy and France. And from there, it began to spread throughout the rest of Europe, especially England. It even affected the United States somewhat in what we call Americanism, or what others call the Americanist heresy. Americanism was simply a, a modernist ecumenical practice in the late 19th century among certain bishops and clergy in this country. As Bishop Kelly once told me, it was basically an attempt to water down Catholic teaching so as not to be offensive to Protestantism. And uh, it was Pope Leo XIII who actually wrote, um, I'm not sure if it was an encyclical letter or a papal bull or something, uh, that he wrote to Cardinal Gibbons, Cardinal James Gibbons of Baltimore, uh, who at the time Baltimore was considered the primary see of the United States. And Cardinal Gibbons was seen as the top prelate in the country. And Leo XIII basically wrote him and blasted Americanism and told Gibbons to get this straightened out. Uh, one of the promoters of this Americanism was a father, Isaac Hecker. He was a Paulist father. And Father Hecker was actually a mentor to Cardinal Gibbons. Uh, <clears throat> I actually read that the, the bishop in the United States who alerted Leo XIII to what was happening here 
was actually Archbishop Michael Augustine of New York. You know, the, the, the uh, Cardinal Archbishops of New York, back to Cardinal McCloskey, who was the first Cardinal in the United States in the 1870s. After Cardinal McCloskey, he was succeeded by Archbishop uh, um, Augustine, Michael Augustine. Michael Augustine was succeeded by Cardinal Farley, Cardinal Farley by Cardinal Hayes, Cardinal Hayes by Cardinal Stone. And I tell you that because all the bishops of New York since McCloskey have been cardinals. They would be elevated to the bishopric, and then you would get what's called the red hat and a consistory in Rome, it's called. Go over, and the Pope would present you with a red beretta, and you would be a cardinal with those special privileges that cardinals had. Augustine, Michael Augustine, never got it. And it is said that Cardinal Gibbons blocked it. And he blocked it because he was not happy that he brought down the wrath of Leo XIII upon him. Whether Cardinal Gibbons was a major promoter in the Americanism, I'm not saying that. I understand Archbishop John Ireland of St. Paul, Minnesota does. But Augustine's the one who blew the whistle, if you will. And he never got the red hat. But he was a good man. So that's what was happening here in the United States, but it was pretty much squashed, as it were. Once Leo XIII sent that over, and he loved the United States of America. He wrote that encyclical, Longinque Oceani in which he praised the United States, and actually by name, he put George Washington's name in a papal encyclical, called him the Great Washington. But at that same time, the late 19th, early 20th century, European bishops, priests, seminarians, and even some of the laity were being infected with these new modernist ideas, (laughs) this new way of thinking, Now, sometimes human nature tends to gravitate to something that's new, a new way of thinking, a new way of doing something. And uh, it started to really pick up. St. Pius X, becoming aware of this, as I said, at length he published the encyclical Ascendi in 1907. Uh, Interestingly, Cardinal Raphael Mary Delval who was the Vatican Secretary of State. And unfortunately, he did not succeed Pius X on the papal throne. I asked Bishop Kelly, what do you think would have happened if he had been Pope after Pius X? He said there never would have been a Vatican II. (laughs) He would have done them all in. He would have done all the modernists. But then the bishop told me, he said, perhaps we didn't deserve Mary Delvaux. But Cardinal Mary Dalval was actually despised by the world press. He was despised by many governments at this time. And he was accused by the modernists. They attacked him in the theological journals, and not so much Pius X. They blamed him for the publication of of Pashendi. And they did this because they did not consider Pope St. Pius X to be a scholar. Do you know that some of them even grossly, disrespectfully referred to Pius X as a country bumpkin? They said he was not like Leo XIII who had been raised in the Vatican, as it were, as a Vatican diplomat, and was a doctorate degrees in all kinds of brilliance and scholarship. It said Leo XIII, as a seminarian, wrote 120 lines of Latin verse in a couple of hours. That's not easy. (laughs) Pius X, they said, was a parish priest. What did he know about scholarly things? even though he did run the seminary in Treviso in Italy and was the Bishop of Mantua 
But they blamed Mary Delval because he was a Vatican diplomat before he was raised to the rank of Secretary of State. In fact, the modernist press, here's one of the lines they printed in one of the uh, newspapers back then. Concerning St. Pius X, he was weak and vacillating in face of the Cardinal's stronger will. He was the victim of Cardinal Mary Delval's aristocratic superiority complex. One press, one author or biographer records that in one of the newspapers, they referred to Cardinal Mary Delval as the Fray Tomas de Torquemada of our times. You know who Fray Tomas de Torquemada was? What a great man. Right, the Spanish Inquisition. Right? He was a great man. And they styled, they styled Mary Delval as the Grand Inquisitor of Pope St. Pius the time. Cardinal Mary Delval's only response was this, that I know of. The Pope, he, and this is a direct quote from Mary Delval's own words, the Pope watched every word of the document. It is his own work, and he takes full responsibility for it. St. Pius X thus wrote the encyclical himself. And as I said, he wrote this encyclical to warn the bishops, the clergy, and the faithful of the sneakiness the cunning, the dishonesty, and the wickedness of modernism. Let me just read to you now the opening paragraph in the encyclical Pashanti. This is how he opens it. It must, however, be confessed that these latter days have witnessed a notable increase in the number of the enemies of the cross of Christ, who by arts entirely new and full of deceit are striving to destroy the vital life of the church as far as in them lies utterly to subvert the very kingdom of Christ. Notice he says, who by arts entirely new and full of deceit. What are these new arts he's talking about? He's talking about the modernist tendency to proclaim we're going back to the original sacred scriptures and the fathers of the church. They're hiding their modernism under the guise of going back to scripture and the fathers of the church. Now, why would that sound so terrible? Or why would that be so bad? Doesn't that sound good to go back to scriptures and the fathers of the church and looking at the faith and dogmatic truths, their goal was to get rid of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Summa Theologica, and scholastic philosophy. Because you cannot get around St. Thomas. Martin Luther quoted St. Augustine pretty frequently. He never quoted St. Thomas Aquinas. He couldn't. Couldn't quote St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas is like a straight line. You can't get around it. His theology, his presentation of theology, which the church adapted in the Code of Canon Law as how theology was to be taught, which is how we teach at the Immaculate Heart Seminary. His theology, it was impenetrable. And the modernists, if they were going to change, they had to get rid of St. Thomas. So their deceptive arts and their cunning was to put this idea of change and update 
and hide it under the blanket, as it were, of sacred scripture and going back to the writings of the fathers of the church. Get rid of St. Thomas. Right? Pope St. Pius X uh, goes on to say, wherefore, we may no longer keep silence. Right? After he talks about what they want to do here and exposes them as striving to destroy the vital life of the church. As much as they could and subvert the kingdom of Christ, he says, we can no longer keep silence, lest we should seem to fail in our most sacred duty. And then he proceeded through this lengthy encyclical to expose them, as I've already mentioned. He laid it all out. Here's what they are all about. And as I mentioned, they took that and then they organized. After he organized their thought for them. And he goes through their false doctrines chiefly in philosophy, theology, and history. Remember last month I told you about the philosophy, how that changed. Modern philosophy. Everything became subjective. It was no longer as I mentioned, and what truth is, that we have to conform what's up here to what's out here. For the modernists, it was, let's take what's out here and conform to what we think. So that truth became subjective and relative. Subjective to the person, relative to the time, to the age in which they live. Modernism hides behind very highfalutin-sounding words and a handful of ambiguous statements, as I mentioned, so they cannot be pinned down. But St. Pius X, he pinned them down. He exposed them from what they were. The encyclical letter, Pashendi, was like a bomb dropped on modernism. It was effective. And it was like, if I could use this expression, it was like a roach spray. If I could use that expression, a roach spray. You know, when you spray a roach spray, they come out. They come out from where they're hiding. And after he published that, en- that encyclical Pashendi, he dropped the bomb on them, and they came out. They exposed themselves. Alfred Loisy came forth. He could not stay silent. He came forth. Then, as we'll see, he gets excommunicated from the church. Let's talk about him. Alfred Loisy. He was, as I said, the most notable of modernists at the time. He was born in 1857. He died in 1940. He was a French priest. He was a professor of sacred scripture at the Institute, the Catholic Institute of Paris. And he is considered by modernists to be the founder of biblical modernism. In 1902, he began seriously reading and studying the heretical works of Adolf Harnack. Remember we talked about Adolf Harnack last time? He was the leader of liberal Protestant theology in the early, late 19th century. He didn't agree with everything Harnack said. But he adopted from him this critical spirit in the interpretation of sacred scripture. What do I mean by critical spirit? I mean he began to interpret sacred scripture not according to the mind of the church, but according to his own subjective religious experience. Interesting to note that he taught 
concerning the foundation of the church by Christ, that Christ did not found the church, according to Scripture, he said. He also said from sacred Scripture, um, he uh, denied the resurrection of Christ. And he also denied the virgin birth. It's interesting to note, though, that before he was ordained a subdeacon in 1878, he had expressed doubts to his superiors about his Catholic faith. He was ordained a priest in 1879. How did this happen? If someone is not ordained a subdeacon, which is that point in their priestly, their seminary life, as it were, where they cannot go back. They take their perpetual, solemn vow of chastity at that point. It's implicit with the ordination. Someone before that expresses doubts about the Catholic faith, especially in regard to the resurrection of Christ, that Christ founded the church. You don't ordain them to the priesthood, let alone to the subdiaconate. You send them away and say you're not fit for the priesthood. After he was ordained, one of the first things he wrote was this. All Catholic theology, even its fundamental principles... What are the fundamental principles of Catholic theology? The divinely revealed dogmas of the faith. He said all of this, and then he went on to say, the divine law, the laws that govern our knowledge of God, he says all these things are now put on trial before a new court of modernism. In other words, this critical spirit. He will not accept the divinely revealed teachings and foully taught by the church. He will not accept the Catholic Church as it is. He's now going to find fault, criticize, error, find error. In 1908, one year after Prashendi, Loisy was excommunicated by Pope St. Pius X. And the degree degree of excommunication, there are various degrees of excommunication, various penalties of excommunication issued by the church. This degree of excommunication was the highest. It's called excommunicatio vitandus. And it literally means, the tandus means to be avoided. To be avoided. He was not permitted to enter Catholic churches. The Catholic clergy faithful were to not have any communication with him. He was asked to recant his heresy. He was asked to submit to the authority of the church, to Pope St. Pius X. He refused. He never recanted his heresy, and he died excommunicated from the Catholic Church in 1940. George Terrell. George Terrell was a contemporary of Loisy. He was born in 1861 in Dublin. He was a convert from Anglicanism and entered the Jesuit order and was ordained a Jesuit priest in 1891. His modernism, unlike Loisy's, Loisy's modernism consisted in sacred scripture, changing sacred scripture. As I said, so far as to deny uh, dogmas of the faith, such as the the founding, Christ founded the church, the virgin birth, and even the resurrection of Christ, which is all over the Gospels and 
No, the Acts of the Apostles. He denied it. George Terrell was not into sacred scripture. His modernism consisted of this. It was a critique or a criticism of the role of the Roman pontiff in the church. And he taught that the Pope was not the ruler of the church. He was not appointed and, and holding supreme apostolic authority over the whole church. The Pope was merely a spokesperson for the Holy Spirit, he said. Second thing that Tyrrell taught was that scholastic philosophy and theology, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, was to be rejected. It's outdated, it's useless, it's worthless. And the third thing he said was the evolution of dogma. The evolution of dogma, as I explained earlier, the evolution of dogma simply meant we had to take these teachings of the church and adapt them to modern thought, to modern way of life. He too after Bashendi was published, came out in the open, exposed himself to the whole world as it were. 1906, he was actually expelled from the, from the Jesuit order already locally. But after Bashendi, he wrote numerous letters in theological journals criticizing Pope St. Pius X. And among his criticisms was to refer to the Pope as a scholastic, as a scholastic, an outdated, naive scholastic who did not understand that the world was changing and the church had to change with it. We say the world was changing. Remember what just happened here. In the late 19th, mid-19th century, late 19th century, you had what history now calls the Industrial Revolution. That changed everything. That was a major change. And you had all the revolutions going on and, uh, throughout Europe. And uh, Tyrrell was criticizing Pius X for his adherence to scholastic theology and his naive view that the church cannot change. He finally said that the encyclical Pashendi did not show in any way that modernists are not Catholics. He said what Pashendi basically said was that modernists are not scholastics, but they are Catholics, he said. Well, he too was excommunicated by Pope St. Pius X in 1908. He died in 1909. Certain priests who were friends with him still pleaded with him to renounce his modernism and to come back into the Catholic Church. But he absolutely refused. He said, I am not dying, he said, out of the Catholic Church. I'm dying out of scholastic theology. In fact, a certain Irish Jesuit priest named Michael Hurley, who's uh, our contemporary to us here, um, I saw an article he wrote about George Terrell. And he praised George Terrell for his deep thoughts. Don't they, they talk like that? You know, you know, I mean, even when John Paul II went to Germany, for example, in 1983, to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther, 
He went to Luther's grave to pray in a spirit of ecumenism with Lutheran bishops and ministers. And John Paul II described Martin Luther in these words. He said that he was a man of deep religiosity. If anybody knows what religiosity is, I'm ready to learn. <laughs> but, but, but this Irish Jesuit priest, Michael Hurley, called George Terrell the father of Irish ecumenism. The father of Irish ecumenism. George Terrell was promoting that third heading I mentioned of modernism, false ecumenism in Ireland. Uh, in fact, Hurley said that George Terrell's beliefs and practices were all vindicated at the Second Vatican Council. Two months before he issued the encyclical letter of Pascendi, Pius X had issued a decree called Lamentabili. And Lamentabili was the uh, was the, the uh, it predated Pascendi. It prepared the bishops and priests of the world for Pascendi. It was a list of 65 modernist teachings that Pius X condemned. In 1910, Pius X issued what's called a moto proprio. Moto proprio means of his own accord. The moto proprio was named Sacrorum Antistitum. And in this moto proprio, this Sacrorum Antistitum, it was a command. It was a command that the oath against modernism was to be taken by every priest. Anyone ordained to the priesthood was to take an oath against modernism. Anyone consecrated a bishop was to take an oath against modernism. Anyone who was going to teach in a Catholic youth seminary or university had to take an oath against modernism. So before, for example, a man who ordained a priest, usually before the subdiaconate, and we do this, <laughs> For the subdiaconate, you have to take an oath against modernism. And then, if you ordained a priest, and then if you were then later sent to teach at a Catholic university or at a seminary, you had to take the oath against modernism again. Paul VI did the oath against modernism and He got rid of it. He said it was no longer necessary. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> Here's something very interesting as well into what St. Pius X also set up in regard to putting the modernists in check. Right? He published Pascendi, he establishes the oath against modernism, and then he set up an anti-modernist network within the church. It was actually overseen by a certain Monsignor, Umberto Benigni. He worked in the office of the Vatican Secretary of State, Umberto Benigni. His immediate superior was Cardinal Mary Delvel. And throughout the world, certain prelates, priests, Theologians were working in this anti-modernism network, watching. They were watching classrooms. They were reading all the theological journals that were published, in which priests would write articles, submit articles. They were reading various newspapers, books. They were looking for modernists. And if they found them... <coughs> They removed them immediately. In 
And despite the criticism, despite the hatred of modernist priests and modernist sympathizers, especially among the press, you know, the press didn't become liberal and lying just in our day. It's been like that for a long time. Despite all that criticism, this anti-modernist movement was so effective. Bishop Kelly told us about a priest who taught dogmatic theology at Immaculate Conception Seminary in Huntington. His name was Father Julian Miller. He was trained in Rome. He studied at the North American College in Rome. That's a very prestigious uh, university. Bishop Kelly recorded word for word what this priest said about modernism in Pope St. Pius X. Father Miller said, among many things, that the action of Pius X was one of totalitarian repression. Father Miller went on to say, and he's talking to a class of future priests, the modernists were right on all the questions they were raising. But Pius X suppressed it. He then called Pius X the rat who was the head of the ship. By ship, he meant the church. Called him a rat. He called Cardinal Mary Val, Bishop Kelly told me, the Gestapo chief of the Vatican. There is thus no doubt that under Pope St. Pius X, modernists were put in check and even halted to a very great degree. They were excommunicated. They were suspended. They were removed from teaching positions. They were pulled out of parishes. But on August 20th, you see our 1914 just as World War I began to break, St. Pius X died. He was succeeded by Pope Benedict XV, who was Cardinal Giacomo Baptista della Chiesa. And we have to make some remarks about this Pope, because under him, Modernists were able, as it were, to regroup. You have to understand, though, Benedict XV did not seem to be a modernist, nor was he an evil man. But he was not a St. Pius X. He was actually a disciple of Cardinal Rampola. Cardinal Rampola was the Secretary of State under Pope Leo XIII, Pius X's immediate predecessor. Rampola had some very liberal tendencies. He was friends with Cardinal Gasparri, who also had some liberal tendencies. Now, what do I mean by liberal tendencies? Remember last time, or I just said, we're not going to use liberal conservative here, right? They had, their liberal tendencies, for example, were in the 1890s, Pope Leo XIII ordered an investigation into the validity of the ordination rights of priests of the Episcopal Anglican Church. And he did this because with the Oxford movement in England, when Pius IX named Bishop or Cardinal Nicholas Wiseman, the Archbishop of Westminster in England, he reestablished the hierarchy of the church in England, which had been non-existent since Henry VIII. Mary Tudor, I should say, to be exact. About 300 years or so. With that, Cardinal Rampola, Cardinal Gaspari, and others had this idea to bring all England back under into the Roman Catholic Church. Let's just say that their priestly orders 
were valid. That'll make it easier for them to all come back. Leo the Thirteenth didn't say, hey, that's a great idea, let's do that. No, he said, let's look into this. The church had already considered the orders invalid. Already. But he looked at it. He had appointed a commission to study the question, and among those on the commission was a young Monsignor who was from England, England, who was of half English descent, half Spanish, named Monsignor Mary Del Val. And under, through the instrumentality of this Monsignor Mary Del Val, all the facts were gathered. Leo XIII published an encyclical, Apostolice Curie, in which he declared once and for all the invalidity of the priestly and episcopal orders of the Anglican Church. From that time, this is like politics in the Vatican, right? <laughs> From that time, Cardinal Gaspari did not like Mary Del Val. Nor was uh, Monsignor Della Chiesa ever close to Cardinal Mary Del Val. St. Pius X consecrated Della Chiesa a bishop in 1907. And it is said that Cardinal Mary Del Val had removed Della Chiesa's name from the list of those who were to be consecrated bishop. But he was consecrated. He was named the Archbishop of Bologna, which is, for centuries, had always been a see in what, what that was a, a diocese that was governed by a cardinal archbishop. Della Chiesa for six years, did not get the red hat. It is said that Cardinal Mary Delval blocked it. He blocked it. It was only in 1913 that he got the red hat. But he was elected Pope on September 3rd, of all days, by the 10th Feast Day, 1914. <clears throat> And it is said that after his election, before it was announced to the whole church, and all the cardinals one by one filed before the newly elected pope to pay their homage, he looked at Mary Del Val, who was there. And he quoted Psalm 117. He said, this, he said to Cardinal Mary Del Val, the stone which the builders rejected. And Cardinal Mary Del Val immediately replied, and the words of the psalm have become beautiful in our eyes. 